Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I am so glad that you are here today. Today we're going to continue a series I started last week called A Little Bit of Wisdom Goes a Long Way. The whole concept idea of this series um, really is straight from Andy Stanley's newest book um, around better decisions and fewer regrets. It's a book filled with six core questions, five core questions really that are at the core of a life filled with better decisions and fewer regrets. And I told you last week that Andy Stanley's questions really kind of came into my life shortly after I became a Christian and became really a pivotal way in helping me make decisions that led to better decisions and fewer regrets. In fact, I would probably say that had I not been introduced to some of the questions early in my Christian journey that I'm going to be sharing with you over the next five weeks, I probably wouldn't be here today with the life that I have. That it was really some of the questions and some of the wrestling that began just a few years after I became a Christian that helped to foster the love for the book of Proverbs that um, is still present and is shaping how I parent and how I lead and how I process through decisions. And as we're kind of on the cusp of a new season of life, of a post-pandemic world, my desire really is over the next six months to kind of help us own ramp into a life the second half of our life on the other side of the pandemic, one that we're actually, we're kind of proud of, one that's filled with better decisions and fewer regrets because all of us have an opportunity right now to decide today what our life is going to look like in 2022. And that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've come from, especially because of Jesus Christ, that we have a chance to emerge on the other side of this a little different. But to do that, we've got to do some things different. Hence, the five questions that I'm convinced if you begin to ask regularly, they'll lead to better decisions and fewer regrets. And to kick off into our first question, I want to take you to the very logical place any first question begins, flaming hot Cheetos. You see, there's been a little bit of drama this week. There's a book coming out this summer. There's a movie being made all about the origin of flaming hot Cheetos. Now, maybe you've never had flaming hot Cheetos, but they are a big deal. Frito-Lay, the parent company of Cheetos, sells a lot of them. This concept of flaming hot became so popular, it began to kind of permeate all of Frito-Lay's different brands. But the reason this story has been so hot, pun intended, is because of the origin story. You see, there's an individual who started off in the Frito-Lay's company as a janitor and then um, rose through the ranks to eventually, towards the end of his career, being the VP of a specific division within the Frito-Lay company. About 20 years after these hit the market, um, Richard um, Martinez, who was um, starting to become a famous speaker on different circuits and was appearing at Stanford and Harvard, Harvard, commanding about ten to $50,000 in speaking engagements, fees, um, he started to talk about how he had helped to invent the Flaming Hot Cheetos, how this was his idea, that he had called up the CEO and that he'd pitched the CEO directly on it. And it became a viral sensation. This man's story helped to catapult him um, into different sectors. He was commanding almost $50,000 of speaking engagement. But this past week, 
on the eve of his new book coming out, on the eve of a movie being made about his life, the L.A. Times basically challenged the entire story. After a series of fact-finding and interviews and looking at company documents, L.A. Times published this bombshell that said essentially that Richard wasn't exactly telling the truth. In fact, Frito-Lays, as a company, released a statement that um, essentially said the story doesn't line up. He wasn't here. The CEO wasn't there when we were testing this product out. In fact, this product existed long before he said he ever had the idea for it. And it's kind of become a big deal. It's become a hot story. But I think the reason it's become a hot story is for a couple different reasons. But one of the reasons has a lot to do with the first question that I want to talk about today. And to unpack that first question, this little question that can really help us go a long way in our life, I want to take you to another story. A story about 2,700 years ago that was playing out in a portion of Israel that we call Judea. Now, this was a really tough period in Israel's history because if you were to look at the larger geographical play around of what was going out around globally, uh, there was a new empire on the scene. It was called Babylon. And there was a new king who had arrived, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a military genius, and his empire had continued to expand. Nebuchadnezzar had another distinctive about him. He was ruthless. He was really, really relentless and completely destroying the people that he sought to conquer. In fact, as personal trophies, Nebuchadnezzar would collect the kings and the rulers of the countries that he had conquered. Not just the king and the rulers, he would collect all of the people, the educated, the, the influencers, anyone in their society that was the smartest, the sharpest, had the most influence, Nebuchadnezzar would take them back with them and leave the society completely devoid of leadership. This was one of his trademark conquering strategies, which is, brings us up to the point of the story that I want to talk about. There was, at that time, a king in Judea named Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim had partnered with Egypt, who at that point was in a global kind of battle with Nebuchadnezzar. They had defeated Nebuchadnezzar the first time. Nebuchadnezzar was not very happy about that. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes along and defeats Egypt. And in the fall of Egypt, all of a sudden, Judea no longer had the support of Nebuchadnezzar's biggest rival. And they were kind of exposed. So Nebuchadnezzar, after he defeats Egypt, wants to make the point to these people that they had chosen the wrong side. So he marches to their city. He surrounds the city, which at the time was surrounded by a, a massive wall. A portion of that wall still exists today. We call that the Eastern Wall, the Wailing Wall. That wall was present all around the city, and it served as the defense system for the nation, for the people. And so everyone rushed into Jerusalem. They shut the gates, and this massive wall was there to protect them. But the problem with the wall is that the wall would stop someone from getting in, but it also prevented things from getting out and prevented 
other things from getting in. So eventually, water and food, the necessities of life, the sewage that would build up, all of those things essentially stopped. And for three months, Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city and laid what we call siege to it. Nothing was going in, nothing was coming out, and the people became increasingly hungry, they became increasingly thirsty, and eventually Nebuchadnezzar's armies were able to breach the city's wall to get in and to defeat Jehoiakim. And Nebuchadnezzar, being the king collector he is, marched Jehoiakim and the greatest leaders that Israel had, if you've ever heard of Daniel from the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, um, you have... Daniel and his friends being led back to Babylon during this time period. And Jehoiakim um, experienced this because he didn't listen to someone that was present in the city at the time. It's this person who's actually the reason we know all of these details today. It was a man named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. And one of the things that's important to understand is that um, in this day and time, Israel as a nation was what's called a theocracy. They were a people who were the ones that said God is our king and the, the king that sits on the throne is really meant to represent God and lead us in God's laws and commands. So this government was a really unique government. There's not a lot of theocracies left in the world. And the whole idea was that there was a contract between God and the people that God the people would say, we will follow you, we'll obey your laws, and God will lead us as the king. And one of the structures that kind of arose to help facilitate that was an individual known as the prophet, the title of the person who would kind of help guide them in how to understand God's laws and kind of help them hear what God is saying to them. And Jeremiah was the prophet during this time period. And Jeremiah actually says to Jehoiakim, hey, um, this is a bad decision. You shouldn't pick a fight with Nebuchadnezzar. This is going to end badly. And Jehoiakim doesn't listen. And what happens is Jehoiakim's taken off, and his son, Jehoiakim, is put in charge. He's 18 years old. And the same storyline, Jeremiah is there to lead and to guide and to help Point out to him, your father didn't listen, but listen to me. We can still turn this around. We can still take this back to God. We can still establish a society that's just and righteous. And Jehoiakim doesn't listen. And three months later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back to the city and does the same thing with him that he did, that he did with his father. But because every people need a leader, Nebuchadnezzar establishes Jehoiakim's uncle as the new ruler. His name was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was the king who reigned for the longest period in this time frame. In fact, Jeremiah goes to him and says, hey, I want to remind you what happened to your nephew, what happened to your brother was because they didn't listen to me and the wisdom that I was giving them from God and how to navigate the situation and the circumstances. And Zedekiah does what any rational person would does. He throws Jeremiah into a deep pit and burns the writings that Jeremiah had written for him. He's not really interested in what Jeremiah has to say. In fact, what's recorded in 2 Chronicles 36.12 is, Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. And 11 years of the same thing plays out, and eventually, 
he decides he doesn't want to pay Nebuchadnezzar anymore. So he shuts it down. He stops sending the check. And Nebuchadnezzar eventually musters his army, shows up to the city, lays a really brutal siege to the city, one that you can read about in the book of Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah. And in the process, Jeremiah is telling Zedekiah, hey, just open the gates and surrender Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. It'll be so much better if you just listen to me. And Zedekiah doesn't. He's, nope, I'm going to do it my way. And as the siege gets harder, it gets darker, uh, people resort to eating their own dead children and cannibalism because they're so hungry. Zedekiah is watching all of this play out inside the city and how dark it's getting. And so he tries to sneak out of the city with him and his family. Even when Jeremiah warns him, he shouldn't. And in the course of trying to sneak out of the city, he's captured. He's brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And and one of the last things that happens to Zedekiah that he remembers seeing is that his family is brought in front of him. And they're murdered right before his eyes. All his kids are killed. And then he's blinded. They completely, brutally remove his eyes. And he's forced to walk back to Babylon in chains. And the nation of Israel, the people of Judea, no longer have a king. I mean, Zedekiah has the privilege of being the last king of Israel. And Jeremiah all along is watching this and he's trying to help guide them. And a very rational question that kind of arises from watching this really tragic story play out is to to say, like, what is wrong with you people? Why don't you learn from the mistakes of your father or mistakes of your nephew, like Zedekiah, what were you thinking? But fortunately for us, God gives us the answer to that question of why is this happening? He gives this answer to us to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, and one of the moments that Jeremiah was recording to give something to the king. And here's what we find in Jeremiah 17.9 that helps us understand everything that we witnessed in the story that we just heard, this brutally tragic story. And it's these words. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah, the reason you're watching this play out, the reason you're watching the people make these choices, the reason you're watching these kings make these choices over and over and over and over is because... The heart, which was a Hebrew concept, not the cardiac muscle here that's pumping blood, but the heart in that time was something that represented the soul or the whole of the person. And he was saying, no, the, the heart, the soul is deceitful above all other things and it's beyond cure. It permeates everything. You notice he doesn't say it's dishonest. He says it's deceitful. It's misleading. And it fills everything. It shapes our thinking, and it shapes our feeling. And it gives Jeremiah in this very simple sentence a little bit of wisdom. 
that can go a really long way. You see, it's really essential to understand that what Jeremiah is delivering to the king in this very simple, pithy piece of wisdom isn't just reflective of the king. It's reflective of me and you too. In fact, when I was reading the story being wrapped up and what was happening around Flaming Hot Cheetos this week, I noticed this quote. Al Carey, who was the former president and CEO of Frito-Lay North America, was uh, kind of giving some commentary that, to Richard's story. And he says, of course stories grow. And the longer we get away from the date, the stories, they evolve. I'll bet Richard's, I bet Richard added a little flavor to it. And I was like, huh, a little flavor. That's what Richard did. That's what Jeremiah is saying. We have a tendency to distort, shape, change. This happens all the time. It's not just Richard's struggle. It's not just Zedekiah's struggle. It's your struggle. It's my struggle. It shows up when you and I are doing research and we're on Google asking a question and we keep scrolling till we find a headline or a website that looks like it's going to agree with us, even if we have to go to the second page to find it. You know, psychologists will come along and they'll say it is confirmation bias, but Jeremiah knows it's a little bit more than confirmation bias. There's, there's a reason confirmation bias is even possible, and it's because we're really good at deceiving ourselves. It's possible that all of the story about the Flaming Hot Cheetos this week, it was that Richard, as Al said, had added a little flavor to his own story. And that he possibly wasn't so much trying to deceive others as he had deceived himself. You see, the thing that you and I have to understand is that the easiest person for us to deceive is the one looking in the mirror. The easiest person for you and I to deceive in our lives is ourselves. Which is why on the other side of regret, we sometimes mumble to ourselves, I don't understand why I did that. What was I doing? What was I thinking? Why did I say yes to that? Or why did I say no to that? And the problem was is that we weren't thinking. We weren't researching. We were adding a little flavor to it. You see, before every regret that you and I ever have in life, there's typically a series of rationalizations, of justifications. And as Andy Stanley says, sometimes justifying is just a lie to ourselves. We have to be cognizant that sometimes we have to notice that when we start to justify a decision, we need to make sure that what we're really doing isn't just a lying to ourselves. You kind of hear it. If you've ever been in a conversation with someone wrestling with a decision and they start to give the reasons, they think the decision's a good one. And if you can kind of lean back and listen with a bigger frame, Sometimes you hear, okay, these are the reasons and the rationalizations for why this, but sometimes you don't hear justifying. You hear them just a lying to themselves. 
they're shaping the narrative in a way that they want to hear it. They're deceiving themselves because the easiest person to deceive is the person in the mirror. And, and this first question, this whole first question that I want to give you today is a really simple one. It doesn't ring profound. It doesn't seem like it can be that life-changing. But when you realize that the easiest person to deceive is the person in the mirror, what this question does is unlock and give you a way, just a little bit, that can go a really long way in your life. It's a question that's not even meant to be asked out loud. It's just a question that's meant to let you kind of look underneath the surface and to make sure and sort through what's justifying and what's just a lie. And the question is simply this, am I being honest with myself? And you say, well, about what? About everything. That when you realize that we are our own worst enemy, that we are our biggest hucksters, snake oil salesmen, that we are the biggest con artists in our lives, then we start to become a little suspicious. This question is meant to just turn up the dial a little bit on our own suspicion of ourselves. If you and I were walking down the street and somebody walked up to you and started to say things like, I want to give you one of the best opportunities you've ever gotten in your life, or hey, do you have three minutes because I want to share with you something that will change your life, a decision that will be the best decision. Like if anyone walked up to you, what happens when people walk up to you you don't know on the street? You automatically turn up the dial. Whatever they're about to say, whatever they've got in their hand, you're, you're already suspicious of it because you're thinking, what are they trying to get from me? What are they trying to lead me to? What are they trying to sell me on? And this question is meant to really kind of make us ask that same question about ourselves. Like, am I being honest with myself, really? Because I am the biggest salesman in my life. I'm the biggest upcharger for the decisions I make in my life. I mean, I'm always pitching myself on something new, something that's revolutionary, something that's life-changing, and all I have to do is pay the shipping and handling, and everything else is free. You see, this question is really meant to operate like an antivirus in our software. You know, when you have a computer, one of the first things that you should do is download some software that's going to help you find some software that gets into your computer that could do some destructive things. That could steal your credit card information or your passwords, right? And it's a, a piece of software that's underneath the surface the entire time operating. And it's there to alert you when something isn't going the way or isn't doing what it's supposed to do. And in some ways, this question is meant to be an antivirus, which is why when you say, well, when do I ask it, you kind of ask it all the time. You're cognizant of this question. And what happens is it, it starts to kind of, as you develop this habit of this question, of being ruthlessly honest with yourself, that you find this question starts to prevent you from walking into regrets. I mean, this past week, I found myself talking far more than I normally talk. And I was asking myself, why am I talking so much? This is not like me. And then I asked myself, like, really? 
And I was like, oh, it's because the people I was eating with were people that I really wanted to like me. And I was doing and saying so much more than I would normally do and say because I really wanted them to like me. That's a really small thing. But it, it caught me off guard because I was like, no, that's what middle schoolers do. And then all of a sudden, I was back in middle school again. You see, reality is that we're all still stuck in middle school in some way, shape, or form. And we have to be able to ask ourselves these questions because if not, we'll fall for our own sales pitch. And our justifying will be just a lying, and we'll keep walking down that path because behind, before every regret was a set of reasons and rationalizations for why this was a good decision. And so to help us kickstart that, to give you a little bit of an example of what this question could look like in a variety of situations, let me give you a series of questions that Andy Stanley writes in this chapter around this first question. Like I asked this week when I said, why am I doing this, really? And I realized, oh, it's because I'm insecure right now because they're all great leaders. They're all really gifted and... I feel insecure, and I really want them to like me. But why do I want them to like me? Is it not enough that God already likes me? Like, what is wrong with me? And this is all playing out underneath the surface, all because I stopped to say, why am I doing this? Really. It's not just because I was wanting to be a good conversationalist. It's because, embarrassingly, I just want one of them to ride with me because I was by myself in a rental car, and I wanted to... Have somebody that I thought was really cool ride with me. Isn't that embarrassing? But I wouldn't have gotten that had I not asked the question, why am I doing this? Maybe it looks like, why am I avoiding him? Or why am I avoiding her? Why don't I want to look them in the eyes? Really? Why, why can't I do that? Why am I postponing that? Why am I dragging that out? Why am I not making that decision? Really? Why am I being so negative? Why do I shoot the ideas down without even considering what the ideas are there for? Why do I keep making excuses? Why did I say yes? Or why did I say no? Why did I take that job? Really? Or why did I not take that job? Why am I leaving? Why did I choose to wear this today? Why did I choose to make that purchase or that lease? What was it really about? Why did I move in? Why did I move out? Why won't I get help? Why won't I tell someone? I mean, I even had that question earlier when I was debating about telling you that stupid moment this week. I was like, why... And I was working through the outline in my head, and, and I got to that point, and I said, um, why, won't I, why won't I say? Why would that not be a good illustration? Because I heard in my head, oh, that won't be a good illustration. You should skip that. And I said, no, the reason I don't want that to be the illustration is because it's embarrassing about me. So maybe I should lean in a little bit more. So I told you more than I wanted to because I recognized the reason I didn't want to say it was because I was embarrassed by it. Because I 
was falling into the same trap the first time. What if they don't like me? What if they think, oh, he's an idiot. He's a fool. Why would he do something? Why am I listening to him? Why should I even care what he's saying about the Bible? Blah, 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 blah. Right? Like I could easily make the same mistake. But if you've ever been around someone who struggled with addictions and had victory, or if you've ever struggled with an addiction and had victory, you and I both know that the way, the path to victory is ruthless honesty with ourselves. And that's where this question is so, so helpful. When we're able to ask that question, what we're really pressing into is this question simply here. Am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself a regret? Am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself a regret? Because if you and I are not careful, our justifying becomes just a lying, and we find ourselves going down a road that leads to regret. And I want to challenge you to start asking yourself this question this week. Maybe even just put it on your phone or on a little note card or maybe as you're working through some decisions coming up, maybe there's some big ones, maybe you're kind of working through some life decisions that you would ask this question to yourself. And then the hope isn't for you to change your mind, but it's to understand and to course correct that deeper, darker tendency that we all have to deceive ourselves. Because remember, the easiest person to deceive is the one in the mirror. But I don't want to just leave you with that despair. Because the first question is kind of sort of depressing. It's a little discouraging. It means, wait, I need to wake up every day cognizant of how I am my own worst enemy? And the answer is yes. But there is a hope. You see, when Jeremiah wrote that, there was another individual who was a contemporary of Jeremiah in that same dark period of Israel's history who was speaking to some of the same struggles that Jeremiah was speaking to, to a different group of people. He is one of those individuals that is taken off into exile. And on the other side of exile, while Jeremiah remained, he began to write his reflections and what he was hearing from God. And one of the greatest promises that he writes in his book, this man named Ezekiel, is the other side of what Jeremiah tells us. It's the hope to Jeremiah's ruthless honesty about the human heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This was what God was saying through Ezekiel. When Jeremiah asked the question, it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? What can we do with it? He's asking, is there any hope to fix it? And the answer is no, it's sick. It's broken. And then Ezekiel comes along and says, well, yeah, there's not a way to cure the broken heart. But there is a a way. And the way is a better way. It's a different way. Instead of trying to repair what's broken, it's to replace it with what isn't, what's new. This is kind of what you see in the same imagery here where Ezekiel was saying, 
Instead of your heart of stone, this heart that's deceitful above all other things, I want to give you a heart of flesh, one that's alive and soft towards God and God's ways. One that's beating with life, not beating with death. And Ezekiel's promise and hope eventually puts on flesh in the person of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who, walking on this earth, teaching, proclaiming, ultimately sets the stage for us to understand what Ezekiel was alluding to, which is that no amount of behavior modification, no amount of check boxes and religious kind of going through the hoops can fix us on the inside. But there is a way for the inside to be repaired, and it's to be made new. And that's what Jesus came to do. When he was crucified on the cross, that heart of stone, that bent, warped way within us all, was crucified with him. And that when he walked out of the grave, he brought a new way, a new hope, a new life, a new person can be born inside of you and inside of me. A new heart can be given to you and to me, a new soul. And it's essentially this fulfillment of the promise Ezekiel makes that Jesus comes to give. But it's not automatic. The, what I talked about last week of repentance, which was the walking one way, the New Testament idea, and then pivoting and turning and walking a different way, that was the step that Jesus said we have to make. We have to recognize the heart of stone. And we have to turn to him to receive that new heart of flesh to kind of go with what Ezekiel is saying here. And that in the process of doing so, not only are we changed, but our life can be changed too. We start to have the freedom and the grace and the strength to be honest with ourselves. Because after you've been honest with God for the things you've done, it's a whole lot easier to be honest with the people around you. It's why for all of eternity, I can tell you that stupid, embarrassing story about me. Why? Because God already knew. And God's response to me was grace. Because in that moment, I recognized what I did. And honestly, I just said, God, I'm so sorry. That was so stupid. Please forgive me. I'm not going to do that anymore. I just repented. And the reason I could do that in that small way is because on August 7th, 2001, I did that with my life. And one of the brutally honest questions that you and I can ask about ourselves is the most important question, which is, what have I done with what Jesus has done for me? A, a really kind of easier way to cut to the chase, this really, really ruthlessly, relentlessly honest question, if I died today, would God let me into heaven? Would I be okay with him? If I saw him, would I look at him or would I look down? That question that just kind of hangs in the air, that makes us a little uncomfortable, is a question worth answering. Regardless of how bad it makes you feel, regardless how uncomfortable it makes you feel, that question is worth answering. Why? Because the answer is worth having. Because unless we're rigorous, ruthless, relentlessly honest, we can't do anything about it. There's no way to know where you're headed unless you know where you are. Right? Every single mapping software asks you two questions. Where do you want to go and where are you? 
And without that, where are you? You can't go anywhere. Because everywhere is where you might be. And this question, this ruthlessly honest assessment, helps us give us our starting point. And the beauty is, is that what Jesus promised in Ezekiel 36.26 through that prophet can be something you profit from in your life and in my life. A confidence, a sense of hope, peace, and joy. The answer to the question for me is if I died right now, I would see him. Because I know every day I remind myself there's a day the name of Jesus will become the face of Jesus. There is no in-between. There is no purgatory. There is no, like, waiting room. It's, there is the afterlife right after this life. And to have hope in the afterlife means you don't have to wait to figure that out. You can have hope in this life and the afterlife. And it comes through answering the question, what do I do with what Jesus has done for me? Do I believe he is who he says he is? Have I responded to that by turning from the way I used to live my life and turning to him who is life? Do I really believe that when I did that, that everything on the inside of me became new? That it became true? And if I really believe that, then I start to live out of that. And I start to walk out of that truth, that newness on the inside. No longer bound and controlled by what's going on on the outside. We can live our lives in such a way that when the name of Jesus becomes the face of Jesus, we won't look down. This is so important. This is why the ruthless honesty matters. Just very frankly, the reason I was walking out of that restaurant and I was asking myself that question was because I was, underneath that is a desire to live for him and to honor him. I don't know, you've ever had one of those aha moments, those moments where it's like everything kind of hits you and you're like, oh my goodness, I totally see it now. You're like, oh, that's it. Like, I believe that when this life is over, instantly, instantly, that happens for us, for our entire life. Our entire life downloaded with instant clarity, no longer justifying, no longer just a lying, it just is. And in that moment of brutal honesty and clarity where we stare at our life for what it is, what we've said, what we've done, everything we've ever said is staring right back at us. Because of the answer to question of what do, what have I done with what Jesus has done for me, I believe I can step into eternity and I don't have to look down. I can look straight at him and say, because of you and what you did for me, here's how I lived for you. Not fearing that I was going to let you down, not fearing that you would throw me out, but because of your grace, I worked harder. I lived, I was more generous than I would have ever been without you. I was more honest than I would have ever been without you. I was more sacrificial. I was more intentional. And I want so desperately for you and for me, not just to come out in this next season with a new life, but to come out of this life living new, standing before the one who died and rose so you and I could be made new. And 
if that's where you are, if that's a question you're wrestling with, if that's something you've never gotten peace about, if quite honestly you don't know and you're not sure, just say it out loud. Say it in your head. I'd love to help you process, not force my decision on you, but help you come to a place of a decision around what to do with what Jesus has done for you. And to do that, a couple different options. If you want to go to our app that you can download at EncounterChurch.com forward slash app. With that app, you can hit Exploring Faith or you can go to EncounterChurch.com backslash faith or you can email me. It's Chris at EncounterChurch.com. And I'd love to sit down with you, whether digitally or whether face-to-face, and help you process through that question because it's worth answering. And for the rest of us, whether you have a group of friends or connections, I want to encourage you to process through these questions. The first question is, if a sales associate in a retail establishment said to you the kinds of things you say to yourself when you're selling yourself, how would you respond? How would you respond to the person who is trying to pitch you on the timeshare? Or to the upcharge? But it's you. Where do you struggle most telling yourself the truth? What are your go-to justifications? One of my mentors this week says, it's always good to know the need behind the deed. It's always good to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Even if you still refuse to do what you should do, at least being honest with yourself about it lets you know what to do when you decide you don't want to do it anymore. And the third question is, Jesus said knowing the truth can set us free. But acknowledging what's truth what's true can be terrifying. Is it possible that the fear of what you discover about yourself by being honest with yourself is an obstacle to the freedom you desire? This is kind of a heavy question, but I'm my own worst enemy. And oftentimes, the one preventing me from having the freedom and the peace and the joy that I really want is me getting in the way. Because here's what I know about us all. That if you and I are willing to lean into this first question, to install it into the software of our life as an antivirus, then we'll, Charlie, we'll start to experience better decisions and fewer regrets as we start to ask ourselves, am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself a regret?